Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. This interview is insane today. It's going to blow your mind in all the best ways. I'm glad you're here today. Louis Schwartzberg is my guest. Louis is a filmmaker, director, cinematographer. You may not know his name. You may not know who he is just from uh, me saying filmmaker, but I guarantee you, you have seen the images that this guy's created. They are everywhere and they have been for 40 years. He's known for his nature work, uh, shooting flowers, shooting clouds, mushrooms, bees, all sorts of just beautiful imagery of nature. And he's especially known for time-lapse photography, showing you, you know, how a flower blooms over the course of several hours or sometimes several days. He's also known for shooting what we call high speed, which is slow motion, seeing, you know, the, the way a dragonfly or a bee or a hummingbird flies so you can really see every subtle little thing of, of how the wings move and things like that. And then he's also known for macro photography, which is uh, taking very, very close-up images that allow you to focus on very small details of things that uh, you otherwise wouldn't see with the naked eye. And he's been shooting time lapses continuously, 24-7, for over four decades. So uh, he's got a really impressive library. He actually founded a stock footage company, the Global Film Library, uh, they were acquired by Getty Images in 1997, but I guarantee you, you know his work. He's also done a number of TED Talks, some of which are among the most watched TED Talks ever, most of them dealing with things like nature and gratitude, and uh, they set his images against beautiful music and narration and just make you really appreciate the world around you and, and make you want to learn more. And, you know, I owe a debt of gratitude to Louis for my own career, Um he was one of the pioneers that brought a lot of this type of really vivid imagery that explains a lot about scientific and, and natural principles into kind of the common vernacular. And my background, for those of you who don't know, I was a producer at This Old House Productions for many, many years. Uh, I ran the show Ask This Old House for the last five years. And I talk about this a little bit with Louie, but the camera technology has changed so much and so rapidly in such a short period of time, in, in my tenure with this old house, technology that would have been unthinkable or at least very, very expensive that Louis obviously was doing for 40 years. But for those of us on you know PBS budgets, all of a sudden it was technology that was built into a lot more accessible, what we call ENG style cameras. Uh, and we could tell just amazing stories. I remember a lot of the types of stories that I enjoyed telling at my time at this old house were about proving things to people. One in particular was looking at chainsaw safety gear. For a long time, it was known that wearing protective chaps on your legs when you uh, run a chainsaw was a good idea. But honestly, a lot of people didn't do it. And I understood that, you know, it was something you were supposed to do, but I never really understood why. And that curiosity led me to make a segment to produce a segment that showed how chainsaw safety chaps work. We had a mannequin that uh, was wearing blue jeans, and we cut into him with a chainsaw from several different angles, shooting at a, a much higher speed, you know, three to four times faster than you would normally shoot. And so when you play it back, you're seeing something at about four times slower than it normally happens. And people think, okay, I'm wearing jeans. Jeans will probably gum up a chainsaw or something. But when you wear protective chaps, 
they have a ballistic fiber in them that is actually designed to immediately gum up the chainsaw motor and stop it almost instantly. And so we did the same test with a mannequin and, you know, three or four cameras all shooting high speed from different angles. You could see long fibers come out of the chaps. You could see them get gummed up into the motor and you would see the chainsaw stop. And when you pulled the chaps off the mannequin, you could see that they, the chainsaw never made it to the backside of the chaps. It was really incredible. And the ability to shoot macro really changed the show as well because we could talk about the function of a rabbit on a piece of wood, for example, cutting a notch in a piece of wood. But when you can actually tell the camera to just look specifically at one little piece of the wood and focus your attention on that, suddenly it changes your whole meaning. And so for us as, as an educational show, all these tools were fantastic. And I think for Louis, they're not just educational, but they're also emotional. It changes your understanding of nature when you look at it closely, when you observe it closely, when you can see things that you can't see with your naked eye. It just it makes you appreciate it on such a different level. And, you know, I hope his work moves us to action because if you look out there, I don't know that climate change is any more real than it is right now, today, as we're looking at hurricanes, two hurricanes in the, in the Gulf of Mexico barreling down again on the U.S. after several very, very active hurricane years looking at wildfires, again, burning like crazy out in California. Look at the tornadoes that just happened in the Midwest. The weather is, is out of control right now. And I think it's, it's pretty undeniable at this point that this is the climate changing. And if we don't take serious action, we're all going to be in big trouble. Louis is also here to talk about his new film, Fantastic Fungi, which... Uh, You'll hear him talk about it, but it's interesting. They had planned this beautiful, big world release at the end of March, and obviously coronavirus happened and the world shut down. And it's interesting sort of how they pivoted and changed the uh, the release strategy around this film. It is now on Apple TV. You can go watch it there. You can rent it. And uh, it's a really moving documentary about sort of the hidden underground network of mycelium and mushrooms. So mushrooms are the reproductive part of the of the fungi. And uh, mycelium are these kind of underground fibers that all communicate with each other and can help uh, digest natural matter. It breaks things down. And, you know, as usual, Louis just does this amazing deep dive into that whole world. And you learn about edible uses for mushrooms, medicinal, psychedelic, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, it's now being used to treat cancer patients and depression and all these different things. And uh, Louis presents all that in an amazing way. He also has these guests, Paul Stamets, who is uh, sort of the guru of, of mushrooms, is on there. Uh, Michael Pollan, Andrew Weil, Brie Larson narrates it. It's a, it's a really impressive, smart documentary, and I would urge you to go check it out on Apple TV. I know I learned a lot from it. And of course, it's just, it's filled with, with Louis's beautiful imagery. But again, there's so much more that Louis gets into. And uh, we have an amazing conversation about mushrooms. We talk about his methodology as a filmmaker. And I think by virtue of the types of subjects that he portrays, he is somebody that has learned to live in harmony with nature and to appreciate the gifts of nature. And so you'll see a lot of this conversation, too, is just about mindfulness and presence and self-discovery. So I hope you'll get something out of this interview. It was one that uh, was really meaningful for me. Here's my conversation 
with filmmaker Louis Schwartzberg. All right. Well, I want to start by just sort of asking, you know, the question that I ask everybody, I guess, is how the last six months or so have been treating you. How has this quarantine period been for you? A great question. It's been um, like riding a wave. Yeah. What's been really um, remarkable is that March 26th, we were going to do a global screening of my movie, Fantastic Fungi, uh-huh. in 500 theaters around the world. We were going to broadcast out of UCLA with a Q&A with me and Paul Stamets. And beginning of March, um, when we started to hear about COVID pandemic, yeah. we pivot into an online virtual Zoom screening. We actually kind of pioneered the whole idea of virtual cinema. Yeah. And what that means, we brought the theaters on as partners. So basically, they blasted out to their audience a link to the movie. And when people watched the movie, we shared revenue with the theater. And then the theater, in turn, took some of that money and used it for food banks to help the community. When we did it on March 26, we had well over 50,000 people showed up and uh, participants from well over 100 countries. So that was, I think, the immediate like kind of U-turn we had to do based on, on this pandemic. Yeah. But being a filmmaker, you know, I've been working virtually you know, a lot, uh, you know, in terms of reviewing edits, you know, online and sharing assets online, I kind of pioneered the stock footage business. I've got a, a server here with 180 terabytes. And when pandemic hit, we um, had my editors and staff work remotely with remote access to my server. Yeah. So we didn't really miss a beat. And when I look at the ability to continue to make Instagrams and trailers for the movie remotely. And we were successful in marketing and distributing the movie remotely. It has been actually a success. We've made modest profit, but we've reached hundreds of thousands, if not actually 30 million viewers with impressions. Wow. Yeah, I wonder, like, March 26th for the premiere, that, like, that was such a kind of murky period, I feel like, where, like, I don't know, for me, I didn't know we were still going to be in at this point. Like, I feel like the the temptation may have been there to just say, you know what, let's give it three or four weeks, and, you know, maybe by early May or, you know, by the summer we can do a full premiere. Like, what was it that that made you want to go that virtual route kind of so early in this pandemic? Well, I think it's because we had been you know, doing marketing and ad and promotion for like two and a half months, driving to the date, yep. you know, and we already had tickets sold in many theaters around the world, like London and Paris, Stockholm, Cape Town. And, you know, we don't control the theater. So the patrons of the theater had already bought tickets. So this was a way to kind of give them a, a coupon in exchange for the tickets. They could then download the movie or watch the movie online. So it was really the only way to kind of shift course. And um, I never really thought about, is this thing going to quickly subside and that we wait? Because the writing on the wall was simply that it was getting worse. Right. And the fact that Donald Trump was lying every day yeah. created a level of uncertainty that you couldn't bet on anything. Yeah, no, it's, it's so interesting. And, and just sort of thinking about the theater piece of it, too. Like, I love that you figured out how to do a rev share with them because that like that industry is just in such tough shape and especially like smaller independent films or you know independent venues like thinking about when they can reopen and just you know how to get how to get revenue back in those pipelines and 
it sounds like this was a success. Like, w- was there any resistance, I guess, from theater owners or were they were they fully on board with this plan? No, they were totally on board because you correctly pointed out, I mean, our theater network were the art house theaters yeah. that are community theaters that depend on community support. So we weren't going to pull the plug on them, right. even if we could. You know? And um, the goal of the movie, when we launched it in the early fall, was to hold space for a conversation about fungi, about permaculture, about environmental consciousness, about nature's intelligence, about psychedelics. You know, all this stuff needed to kind of be encouraged in the local community to gather around these pillars of conversation that enabled local leaders to show up and to continue the networking that occurred at all of these events. So the whole idea of networking is kind of the message of the movie. Yeah. You know, I never knew when I made this film that the closer would be communities survive better than individuals, that this mycelium underground network is a shared economy where you know nutrients are shared for ecosystems to flourish, a perfect model for how we need to live our lives. I mean, I didn't know any of that. So when we launched the movie on our own, we basically modeled the mycelial network. (laughs) We didn't spend money on, you know, advertising. We just put the word out within the local community. Yeah. You know, whether it's decriminalized movement or whether it was permaculture or the mycological, you know, we just, they posted their stuff, you know, the the, the film on their Facebook page or Instagram. And guess what? We sold out theaters. You know, it blew my mind, completely blew my mind. Yeah, it's interesting, just sort of that that analogy, I guess, of of how mycelium work and how communities function. And I, I guess, you know, I, I've heard you talk in general, too, I, I think maybe in one of your TED Talks, sort of about how nature has taught you that, that as humans, we're all connected to each other and sort of to the greater world around us. Like, I wonder sort of how you interpret all that given the situation that we're in right now where, you know, people are still in many cases isolated at home or the people that are back to work or back to school, it's a, you know, a completely different experience where everyone's staying six feet apart and masked up. Like how, how do you, how do you see our interconnection playing out, you know, right now in August of 2020? Well, clearly I think one of the hardest things about this pandemic is disconnection from each other. Yeah. And one of the you know giant lessons I think we've learned, which we probably took for granted, was the human need for connection. And what I think nature has shown me in the you know decades that I've been filming is that everything is interconnected. That there are all these you know symbiotic relationships. That nothing in in nature lives alone. And so that you know really resonates strongly. I think anytime you do a deep dive into nature into biomimicry. So I think what that means for us right now, for people that are suffering, is I think we need to kind of reboot and come up with some more positive solutions of how to create reconnection. I think we've also, from a biological point of view, I think we've stressed the immune system of the planet. I think that, you know, this thing didn't happen like on its own. It felt like this little alien COVID virus landed here. The awareness that, you know, we are giant universes, you know, that are walking around composed of trillions of cells in your body, of which tens of trillions are microorganisms, viruses and bacteria, you know, 
And it's kind of like open your eyes to the fact that that is the world we live in. And to if you're more conscious of that, then I think that first of all, you may not you might be less scared of COVID. It isn't like this little molecule from outer space that's out to kill you. There are good viruses and bad viruses and good bacteria, bad bacteria, good fungi, bad fungi. We need to learn how to live in harmony with nature. Hmm. That's the key. That's the key. And so let's wake up and figure that out because we don't want to go back to normal, right? I mean, climate change is a big problem. Killing the bees, that's a big problem. Half a, you know, I think 5 million children starved last year from hunger. We have the uh, technology, we have the intelligence, we have the science to build a better system based on nature's intelligence. And I think that maybe it's good that we can take a pause right now and do a realignment so that when we come out of it, we can live more prosperously and more in harmony with nature. Yeah. No, I I completely agree with you. And I feel like there is sort of, I like that you pointed out sort of the interconnectedness of all of those things, that, you know, whether it's colony collapse or climate change or, you know, COVID, like they are sort of all symptoms of of what we're doing to the planet right now and, and sort of how we're interacting with that. And, you know, I wonder too, just sort of thinking about I guess the patterns that emerge, as you said, you've you've spent your whole career, you know, four decades kind of studying nature and, and looking at it in ways that, that a lot of other people don't, or just certainly that the casual observer doesn't. Like, I think of, I guess, some of the patterns of like tree roots and tree branches and river tributaries sort of all sharing mm-hmm. the same architecture. <laughs> and I guess I just wonder, like, right. what are what are some of the patterns or the lessons, I guess, that you've, that you've picked up on in nature and that, that you think can benefit all of us to, to look at and to learn from? Well, I think one of the things I love to do is to be inspired, you know, when I'm filming by, by nature. And I think that I'm always looking for these rhythms and patterns that touch the deepest part of my soul. And it isn't just my soul, it's everybody's soul. Because you know, when when people watch, you know, the, the films, they go, oh, my God, you know, it's either spiritual or it made me cry. It isn't like my particular taste. I'm just like reflecting the patterns of nature that are universal, as you pointed out. So whether it's like, you know, the tributary in a river, the roots of a tree, the circulatory system in your body, the nervous system in your body. These branching networks, the mycelium network, let's not forget that one too. Right. Yeah. But these branching networks are, when you speak to you know, a scientist, they'll say this is the most efficient way to move nutrients or, or water. You know, These branching networks are highly efficient, and that's what also nature teaches you. Nature doesn't waste a single molecule. You know, nature finds the most efficient way, which we appreciate as beauty, I believe, mm. you know, it's like the, that's the, the essence of architecture, right? Yeah. You know, design is beauty and beauty is design. I mean, we, we when we build things, we, we pretty much mimic nature. And the fact that it touches your soul, it moves your heart. I mean, think about this. Nobody teaches you what is beautiful. Yeah, I think in general, most people agree on what is beautiful, right? Yeah. Whether it's a 
Capri or a Red Rose or, you know, in general, I mean, we could have some differences here, but it's not like we have to go to school and learn that. I think it's in our, you know, it's intrinsic and it's in our DNA because beauty is nature's tool for survival in order for us to protect what we love. Mm. We're hardwired to respond to beauty. That's why puppies are cute and kittens are cute. That's why your baby is cute. Why would you like, you know, be a slave to this thing for 18 years and take <laughs> care of it? Yeah. You know, if it didn't turn you on. Yeah. Because DNA wants to go forward, right? Life wants to evolve. They came up with this genius idea called reproduction because everything in the universe wears out. So you, they, they, they've got us hardwired to nurture your offspring, whether it's a human being and your child or whether it's the mother tree and its seedlings. There is nurturing going on. And, and so you talk about the oneness of everything. I mean, in my film, you know, Suzanne Samard, you know, a scientist from, you know, Vancouver, she proved it. You know, you put radioisotopes in a tree and then you track it going underground as a baby tree. It's remarkable yeah. through the mycelial network. So here again, it's like, I don't want to sound new agey, but <laughs> it's all connected. And, <laughs> but and it is, fact, yeah. It's all connected scientifically and... And love, love is, is, is also, I think, part of it as well. Why does the mother tree favor its own kin? Yeah, yeah. It does sound new agey, but it also makes sense. And as you say, it's scientific too. And I, I feel like part of what makes your films, all of them, and, and especially, you know, Fantastic Fungi too, um, this kind of marriage of, of technology, of, you know, using, you know, time lapse and, and editing techniques and things, mm. Um, but blending that in a way that's seamless so the audience isn't aware of the technology and it reads as art. And as you say, the art is is nature. It's it's you know, you're 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 holding a mirror up to something that exists all around us that often we just don't focus on or don't, you know, don't pay attention to. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh yeah, you're totally right on. It's because I think that when I'm able to use like, you know, time lapse or micro or macro I mean, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm breaking the you know, narrow perception of human vision yep. in terms of scale and time. And in fact, I'm just showing you what's real, which is remarkable. But when you see it from the point of view of a flower, a redwood tree or a hummingbird, oh, my God, that's going to change your life forever. Right. You know, and you really and then you're going to fall in love with it. You want to protect it. And so. um no, clearly, I think, oh, I'm sorry, I, I think I spaced on what the question was. It got me so involved in like, you know, exploring time and scale. Yeah, I, I don't know that I even asked a question. It was more just kind of that, oh, that okay. marriage of, of art and technology and, and nature and right. sort of, you know, putting that all together seamlessly, I guess, in a package that, uh, that makes people appreciate it in a different way. And, you know, so, because you're, you're also involved with film production, aren't you? Yep, yep. I was a producer for many years. Oh, you uh, yep. Exactly. So, so what, what I love to do is like, I've got shots to go back to back that like is extreme slow-mo or extreme time-lapse. And when you see them on the screen, they move at the same speed. Mm. They flow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always, you know, trying to massage what I capture. It's not just like sped up or slow down. No, it's got to be done artistically at the right frame rate, Right. But in order to communicate grace and beauty and, and movement, so 
what blows my mind is I can take shots that are time-lapse like a flower, you know, and, and put it next to like a hummingbird in ultra slow-mo. Yeah. And when they interact, it's like, oh my God, I can be in both those extreme worlds right. at the same time. Yeah. Right. And it's like, whoa, and it's beautiful. And, and, and the beauty is to, is to engage the audience. You know, I'm not doing it in, in a manipulative way, but I'm seducing you into learning the science and the physics of time and scale. Right. And, and it's done so artfully, too. And, you know, you asked about my background. Like, I worked at, at this old house, the PBS show, for many years. And we were a show on a PBS budget. So, uh, you know, it yeah. wasn't, wasn't the highest end of, of production, let's say. But when certain things started getting more at the consumer level, GoPros and things like that, and even just, you know, full-frame sensors and things on, on ENG cameras, like our ability to tell stories just changed dramatically. And You know, I remember like the first time putting a GoPro inside of a wall cavity and, you know, it's, it's a different world than the stuff you capture. But for us, it was like to, you know, for 30 years, we'd been saying on the show, here's where the wire goes behind the wall. And if you imagine it goes into the, and then all of a sudden you just see that wire moving and you're like, Oh, I get it. And, And just, yeah. Understanding the visual language and, you know, it's, it's, it completely changes your understanding of everything. Not only does it change your understanding of it, but there's a side benefit again, that it's, that it's spiritual. You know, because you get rid of the arrogance of the human point of view. Yep. And you're able to like step outside of that. That's the benefit of being able to like, you know, um, go beyond the narrow confines of what the human eye can see. Because then we get that arrogant view that you know, we're on top of the food chain. It's all about us. You know, we're not, we're not connected to the rest of the planet. We're right. not connected to the bees and the flowers, you know. And it's like, be aware that what you do to them, you're doing to yourself. Yeah, no, so totally. With and vision, it's like, let, let's bring our family into this conversation. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about like the, you know, with bees or something, like the colony collapse thing scares me like crazy because I'm like, so what pollinates our food then? Like, if we kill off the right. bees, we go hungry. Like, has no one made that connection? I, obviously, scientists and stuff have, but it just, it doesn't seem like there's enough of that consciousness sort of in the... I don't know, the, the pop culture public space, you know, it's still, it's still fringy. I know, but they, they attribute a quote to Albert Einstein that if the bees go, we'd only have five years left to live. Right. And most people, when you think about it, they look at a flower, they go, that's a pretty flower. No, it's the beginning. It's the sexual organ of the plant that's going to turn into a fruit, a nut, a seed, nutrition that enabled mammals to evolve on planet Earth right. 50 million years ago. Yeah. Like it's the greatest biological invention that ever occurred on planet Earth. And they developed this you know, symbiotic relationship with the bees to move their DNA around because plants don't have legs they right. know, and they need to mate. Yeah. <laughs> and they want to get on with somebody other than themselves, right. you know, which is a natural thing. So like, wake up. We just got to realize that the interconnection of every little thing down to the little insects is the fabric of life that we are interwoven with. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I want to ask sort of in working so much both in high speed and in time lapse, what does that do to your own sense of time? Like, has has it shifted how you think about the time of day or your own life or sort of any of that? Absolutely. I mean, 
I think most people that are you know becoming more aware. I mean, I've stopped wearing a wristwatch. <laughs> it's such a joke. Yeah. As a filmmaker, I have to be punctual. I have to show up on time, and I have to definitely show up on this podcast on time. <laughs> no, I mean I recognize what linear time is, but you also then I think it takes you on a more of a transformational journey when you realize that it's just a human construct. I mean, actually, all meditative practices preach the idea of being in the moment, mm -hmm. becoming present. And when you're present, there is no past or future. And when you're present, it actually is, I think, the gateway to the most spiritual, you know, experiences of, 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 of touching the divine, of um, uh, being filled with wonder and awe. You know, which is the intersection between art, science, and technology. Yeah. You know, that's bliss. So, yeah, it has it changed my perception? Absolutely. Any any time I can figure out how to get there. Yeah. You know, how to become present. And again, I don't meditate. My filmmaking is my practice. You know, I'll set up a shot on a time lapse flower, and I have to kind of imagine what that bud is going to look like two or three days from now when it opens right in terms of how i frame it and where i focus and what the background is going to be and so i love the idea that i'm thinking ahead in time in that way you know thinking about like where the flower is even if i'm just shooting a time-lapse cloud i mean how about just pausing for a moment we never do this we look at the sky oh it's a beautiful day look at those clouds do you know what direction it's going in do you know how fast it's moving I mean, not that you have to measure scientifically, but just to just to love it and feel it and experience it. Yeah. You know, like, wow, look at those clouds. Right. And, and wow. And when you're filming, you know, outdoors, of course, you're always having to be cognizant of that, especially in time lapse, because I might be shooting something that for the moment is boring, but there's a storm front coming in on, you know, to the right. And I'm going to frame it so that I can capture it coming into frame. So all of a sudden now, like, the day is, is, is a giant canvas, and I'm trying to choreograph where the light is going to be four hours from now. Right. How, how do you learn that? Like, is that is it experience primarily just like, you know, by framing something, you know, 10 degrees off the first time and then sort of having to observe, OK, what went wrong with that shot? The clouds actually move this way. Like, I, I guess that's a piece of it, right? It's just experience and sort of learning how to read nature. That That's a big piece of, of your work, right? Yeah. I mean, I think experience is a big piece of it, but I got to tell you, it's being present also, Yeah, you know, because every cloud is going to be different. Right. You know, all the experience I have, especially if I go to a new location, you know, and I, I don't know the weather patterns as much that are more predictable or have a pattern. Right. But I still have to observe because every day to win, there's a nor'easter. No, it's coming off the coast. <laughs> it's right. like, where, what, what, what direction is the wind blowing? Right. I mean, think about how ignorant we are every day. You know, I bet 99.9% .9 of the people today in America, I would say, don't know what direction the wind is blowing. Yeah, I think you're right. Even you were talking about the clouds moving, and I was, I was imagining that and just sort of thinking about, you know, when have I been in that present state of mind? And the, the experience that comes to mind is like floating in a pool on vacation, like just kind of lying on my back and and watching the clouds move. But sort of in day to day life. Yeah, you, you get lost in your own experience. And it's hard to, to bring yourself to that place to just to stop and smell the roses, I guess, so to speak. Exactly. And, and I'm, I guess I'm hoping that's what I'm doing with the imagery, because by manipulating, you know, time and scale in, in my films, 
I'm getting into, you know, to like stop for yeah. a moment. Wait a minute. What is that? You know, because you know, people always, it's really amazing. I think the common phrase I get all the time is, oh my God, you yeah. know? Right. And I've broken that down to like, that the O is, I made you present. I, 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 you know, you stop like, oh, my means it touched the deepest part of your soul. And God is that universal energy we all want to be connected to, mm. you know? And because it is real, because it's not like Star Wars, where, you know, we're blowing up a spaceship, you look at that and brain goes, it's not real, right. you know, it doesn't move you. But if all of a sudden you're watching roots growing or the mycelium network, a mushroom growing, and it's like, whoa, because the brain doesn't know how to like pigeonhole it, right. you know, it, it, it's like, oh, it's a mushroom, you know, and you walk away. No, no. What the fuck is that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, it glues you. Right. You know, and, and how is that flower going to open? It's twisting, like it's doing this gorgeous spiral pirouette. And I've got to watch this ballet. I want to know where it ends. Right. Right. I want to know too, just sort of, you know, how, how you get those shots, I guess, like thinking about, you know, a mushroom growing on, on a log in a forest or, you know, a shot like that. Like, is it, is it just you and a camera? Do you have a crew with you? Like, are you guys, you know, are you, are you gripping and, you know, changing the light and things around it? Or are you just sort of going with what's there? Like, how do you actually make your shot so beautiful? You know, before I, I guess I sort of start off doing, you know, you know, documentaries and, you know, time lapse. And then for 15 years, I was a commercial director uh-huh. because you really couldn't break into the industry in the eighties and nineties, unless like, you know, you're in the union, you couldn't get in the union unless you had like, you know, credits on future films. So like a catch 22. Yep. So one of the things I did in order to like, you know, keep my production going and to feed my family is to become a commercial director where you hire yourself to be the director. And there are no rules or regulations that keep you from, holding a camera. Yep. Right. And so I learned how to make the impossible possible, you know, because you get these crazy storyboards all the time. It's like, Oh, here's this, uh, you know, bottle of Coke and it's going to fly out the window and it's going to land on the moon. Yeah. And we need to have this commercial in like, you know, 20 days. Right. How are you going to do that? And so I'm coming around to trying to answer your question, which is basically I need to tell the story of a mushroom growing on a log. I can't have the camera outside for weeks on end. I need to be able to control the lighting. So therefore I'm going to build a set on stage Mm. where I can control the lighting and have it be indoors and make sure that nobody steals the camera and that there's no wind blowing, which can rattle the shot at all. Even a tiny breeze, you know, makes it shiver and quiver. And so, yeah, it's all, a ton of problem solving in order to replicate what is natural, true, and authentic. Yeah. So is like, if you're, if you're building a set for it, are, are are you keying in like a deeper background? In other words, like, are you just, do you just have the mushroom on the log, but then the forest is is something you've shot at a different time? Or are you like literally building a forest in a, in a stage? As a fellow filmmaker, you know, it's a, you have a bag of tricks. And yep. It's all the above. Okay. <laughs> it's all the above. And a lot of times you know, when you're shooting macro, you actually like the look of a shallow depth of field. Right. So I don't need much of a set. Anything like 
six inches or 12 inches away pretty much falls out of like radical focus. Right. Right. And so everything is out of focus. And that, that is actually more authentic than having it be in focus. Right. Right. In some of the shots too, I've seen not not in in your current film, but in some of the other stuff, you know, hummingbirds and dragonflies, and as you say, it's super shallow. And for me, just thinking about like getting focus, even just getting something that fast moving in frame to me is difficult. But then having it in laser focus, like you have it, it's such shallow depth of field. Like, what are what are some of the tricks to make those shots work? Okay, are these are trade secrets you're asking me, or just tricks? <laughs> uh, either or, you can you can answer it however you're comfortable. Yeah, I'm just I'm toying with you a little bit. I think um, I'm coming back to the same answer. Yep. Which is become become present. Yep. You know, observation is the key to scientific discovery. Correct. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you you observe. You what does the hummingbird do? Observe the way it comes out of the tree and always comes to the feeder in a certain pattern. Mm. You know, if you watch it, you'll learn. Yeah. And you'll pick up the pattern. It's again, look, picking up the patterns. Right. They're everywhere, but you kind of have to kind of slow down and have a blank slate of terra incognita, you know, and look at it as if you're a child with wonder and awe. Mm. Yeah. It, we do bring a lot of our own prejudices to, to everything we look at, right? Right. And then so pretty soon you learn the pattern. And when you figure out the pattern, you set the focus and boom, you get the shot. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I want to ask sort of too, just sort of how you got into this to begin with. Like, what was it that first gave you the bug to want to make time lapses? Well, so I graduated from UCLA. Um, I wanted to, I was really into fine art photography. I actually started by shooting photo essays of the anti-war protests on campus against the Vietnam War. And back then, as you know, there were no iPhones, right. <laughs> so I actually had to take a course on photography and learn how to use a camera, yep. which people forget that that was like the drill. And so that turned me on to, you know, filming nature. And when I started to film nature, I met the greatest teacher, you know, Mother Earth uh, teaches you everything you want to know about lighting, composition, color, texture, movement. And then... You know, as a part of that back to the land movement, I moved up to Mendocino from UCLA and um, I wanted to shoot 35 millimeter movie film. Yeah. But I couldn't afford it. Even back then, it was $100 a minute for film development and process and a work print. Wow. So a four minute roll would cost me $400. And a camera would be 100000 to $200,000. There was like, you know, Airy. I think one other brand was Australia, I forgot. And then there was Panavision, right. if you remember. Yeah, you know? sure. And, then, and that was only leasing a camera. Right. And so I got these old 35 millimeter movie cameras built in the 20s and 30s, Mitchell Rackovers. That means it's a camera that you can't see through the lens, but you have to kind of rack it over and look through a borehole uh-huh. through the lens, like a side viewfinder. Um, but the beauty of these cameras is that they had pin registration. Pin registration means that during the exposure, there are pins that go into the sprockets and hold it perfectly steady. Mm. Well, these bodies were like sitting on the shelves in these rental houses way in the back. And, you know, I bought a couple of them for like 2000 bucks. Now, eventually the price soared on these cameras because George Lucas invented with his team at ILM motion control. Yeah. Remember that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we got a computer and then these old 
cameras were perfect because they had the same movement, uh, pin right. registration yep. that a Panaflex camera has. And you could buy them, you know, cheap and you didn't have to be, they were not real time. And, but, but all those cameras, right, were still animation cameras that ran on AC power. So my biggest obstacle other than money to buy film, I always dreamed, I wish my dad like was, you know, owned Kodak. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, that was like the thing I wanted more than anything was right. film. Now we take that for granted because you can shoot a ton of digital right. without even worrying about the money, yeah. which is a little weird. But my biggest drawback was I didn't have the ability to take these cameras outdoors. They're all AC powered. Animation right. cameras are AC powered and they're big and heavy. So a buddy of mine, Ron Wickersham, up north, he was building electric guitars for the Grateful Dead. He helped me build a, a DC motor that ran on flashlight batteries that I could attach to this Mitchell camera. I then took still camera lenses, modified the front because the still camera lens is a fraction of the cost of a quote unquote movie lens, yeah. right? And I was able to like, you know, glue Goldberg this thing and go outside and chase the light. You know, sunrises and sunsets and fogs and shafts of light and and nobody had ever done that before, ever, in 35 millimeter. I mean, time lapse had been done in the 30s as a scientific tool on 16 millimeter, where they would shoot like a flower or plant with a grid behind it. They'd measure the growth. Yeah. And it was a kind of a scientific tool. And that was like a you know, really cool breakthrough. Um, but nobody had really used it in terms of creating art yeah. or you know, cool imagery. And, and then because I did all of that, it evolved into the fact that advertisers kind of, you know, located me because I tried to bring it to Hollywood. I showed all the studios and the networks and they went, oh, my God, this stuff's beautiful. But we don't know what to do with it because you can't tell a story without conflict. Yeah. It's just beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. And I'm going, what the? <laughs> WTF. Yeah. But the ad agencies, they got it. Because just like they, who are the smart people? Google, right? Yeah, right. Facebook. It's all about, you know, eyeballs. So advertising agencies, they look at it, they go, it's eye candy, right? Right. I, I can use this to grab your attention. Yeah. And I created the Energy Film Library. 20 years later, we, we're the largest contemporary stock library. And Getty Images, you know, buys us. We have 12 foreign offices around the world representing 100 producers. Universal Pictures, Playboy, Warren Miller, etc. Wow. That's how it all started. That's a journey. I, I wonder why why thirty five though. Like when you're talking about cost and all, like I, I couldn't you have just done like an indie or something on on eight or sixteen. Like why why did you no. why did you want to do thirty five so badly? I had to. I want to do thirty five because it's all about resolution, mm. and that's still true today. Yep. It's all about what, where's it going? HD, four K, eight K. You know, it's not 3D necessarily. And so resolution is where it's at. Also because I was inspired by, you know, Ansel Adams yeah. and Edward Weston. You know, they shot on 8 by 10 inch giant right. plate negative. Yeah. Right? And I would have wanted to do. I would have, you know, been shooting nature in 4 by 5 or, you know, what the bigger the negative, the better. Right. 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 So I wanted the highest quality. And the, the benefit of that is, you know, when I launched my series, called Moving Art on Netflix. Yep. That all happened because Netflix announced they were able to stream 4K. And this is about seven years now. 
ago, and they had nothing to show at the uh, the electronic show in Vegas. You know, yeah. And they CBS, said, yeah. I met and I met the CTO, you know, at Ted. He remembered I had this archive, so they come to me and go, Hey, we need some demo material in 4K, even House of Cards, which they spent you know 100 million dollars making. They may have even shot it in 4K, but they edited it in 2K in yeah. HD. So they had nothing to show. So I put together these four shows, Forest, Ocean, Desert, Flowers, and it was all scanned from 35-millimeter movie film to 4K. So they showed at CES, everyone's blown away. Oh, my God, this stuff's amazing. So amazing that they decided to put it on the network. Wow. Now, nobody knows that what they were looking at was stuff shot 40 years ago. <laughs> right. But you had the resolution from the beginning. Yeah. Now that makes perfect sense. Right. So, so think about that for in, in terms of the response to your answer. Like, why shoot 35? Yeah. You know, like, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know there was going to be 4K in the future. Right. Right. But I think that investing in quality is always going to be the payoff. Yeah. That's a that's a great lesson. I, I want to ask you, too, we, we talked about Fantastic Fungi a little bit at the beginning, but um, I, I want to dig a little deeper into it and just sort of, I, I want to understand, first of all, sort of how you came to this topic. What was it that made you want to tell the story of mushrooms and mycelium? Well, as I said earlier, what, you know, I started to shoot time-lapse because of two things, lack of money and a sense of wonder. Yeah. And uh, so I couldn't afford film, so I started to shoot flowers because I could spend a couple of months <laughs> shooting flowers and not run out of film. Yeah. Four minute roll of film. And so I continued that because, you know, the flowers probably seduced me with their color, their beauty, their taste, their aroma, all of that. And then when I heard about, you know, colony collapse disorder, I figured, well, maybe there's a reason other than capturing beauty that I'm shooting these flowers because you can't tell the story about the bees unless you tell the story about flowers and how they co-evolved right. together. So when I realized, oh my God, that pollination is like this you know, magical, mystical in intersection be between the animal and the plant world that gives us the most important food we need to eat, well, then you ask even a bigger question. What do plants need in order to survive? Well, they need soil. Where does soil come from? Hmm. It comes from the largest organism on the planet. It's everywhere. You know, it can heal you. It can feed you. It can shift your consciousness. It's under your feet. It's under the bedrock and below the ocean. Yeah. I mean, what am I talking about? You know, I'm talking about mycelium. And, and nobody knows this. <laughs> right? Yeah. I didn't. I say nobody. Until, I should say nobody. Yeah. I say majority of people right. don't not even not only don't they know what mycelium is, which breaks down organic matter and, and even rock to create soil to recycle these nutrients back into our ecosystem, they don't even know that the soil is alive. Right. That you know, in a teaspoon of soil you could have a million organisms. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's just starting to come into to people's understanding just in terms of, you know, gardening even or, you know, feeding your lawn, you know, things like compost tea and stuff are kind of relatively new terms that, uh, yeah, it's the soil's alive and you got to take care of it. And it's it's fascinating. It's almost like sci-fi right. because more than just, okay, we learn about composting and, yeah, you got to, and it, yeah, you feed the plant because it's a living thing. It needs food like you do. Duh, you know, no, it's like it's deeper than that, because, again, 
it's microbiology that is the cutting edge of science. It's right. microbiology that is the cutting edge right now trying to figure out this pandemic, correct? Yeah, definitely. What do we know about micro microbiology as a science probably did not exist 50 years ago, right? 100 years ago. Yeah. So think about that. We, we, we were clueless. Yeah. You know, completely clueless to, to, to the microbiome. Right. Which in your gut, which helps you digest your food. I mean, that's why I made this movie. I mean, I guess I'm getting close to the answer that, you know, the, that the flowers led me to pollinators. The pollinators led me to the fact that plants need soil. And where does soil come from? They come from fungi, you know? So all I'm trying to do is unveil the mystery. I'm trying to keep on asking the bigger question, you know, why? Right. What makes life go, you know, go around? And that's why I made the movie. Right. Well, and it's so interesting, too, I think, just sort of getting to that why question. And I feel like your movie touches on it in so many different ways, and especially, you know, sort of talking about uh, psilocybin and people experiencing that and sort of the parallels to religion, I guess, of sort of understanding the universe, your place in it. I, I wonder sort of your reaction to sort of, I guess, as you get deeper into these types of subjects, like, do you feel like you understand the meaning of life or why we're here or sort of any of those big existential questions any more than you did, you know, as a young man? Hmm. Well, I think, I think I have definitely, you know, gained more wisdom. And again, it's from you know, observing nature and filming nature, because for me, that is my truth. Yeah. And I think it's the truth for a lot of people, not just me. I'm not like I discovered nature's intelligence, <laughs> like, hello. Yeah. You know, I mean, indigenous people live by that mantra for millions of years or tens of thousands of years. That is their reality. Right. Correct. Yeah, definitely. You know? So, you know, we've uh, in the last couple of hundred years separated ourselves from nature. So I think that these patterns and rhythms I've learned, I've observed, well, not only is it good for my filmmaking, you know, in my art, but it's also made me a strong environmentalist because I, I get it, I see it, but there's also a, I think a transformational effect that occurs because it does, you know, in a sense, make you more spiritual. I know that's a loaded word. I don't know what other word to use, yeah. um, but you become more transcendent. You know, you become, you know, you realize you're just this one little molecule in a chain of events that have been going on for millions of years, which gives you a level of comfort. Right. I mean, in the movie, we see Tony head, you know, who has a severe, you know, cancer diagnosis. He's a John Hopkins yep. where they're treating people with severe anxiety and, and depression. So you imagine you get this, you know, diagnosis, you got prostate cancer and you might be, you know, have a short time left. So you got to deal with this physiological problem that hit you. And you got to deal with the mental problem of, Oh my God, this, what happens when I die? Right. You know, it's like, Oh my God, like another you know, com complex issue that lowers your immune system physiologically to, bite the, to fight the battle you got to fight. So, right. so Tony had in the movie, he goes through this treatment with this one experience with psilocybin and the classic line that he says at the end is he embraced living because he lost his fear of dying. Yeah, that was such a powerful moment. It really, uh, it makes you think about sort of why we're here and, you know, what... Uh what it all means. Uh, I wonder too, does it in, in having some of these spiritual awakenings and, you know, this, this spiritual side of you that, that 
comes out, you know, in in learning about all these worlds, I guess, and and sort of observing nature. How how does that square with sort of do do you have a view of of organized religion, and does it does it uh, does it uh, meld well with with the view you have from nature, or or are they divergent? But that's a question that could get you in trouble, huh? <laughs> well, my understanding from you know the research that I've done is that really most religions you know started as a spiritual experience, you know, that was probably triggered by plant medicine or, or a mushroom, you know, that's where most spiritual experiences came from. Certainly that's true in indigenous cultures. And, um, you know, the Greeks had their ceremonies, you know, they found cave paintings in Algeria, you know, the mushroom man where, you know, he's, he's got, you know, magic mushrooms all over his body. I mean, it's everywhere. And so I think what has happened and whatever triggered that spiritual experience, it could have been even something else, potentially. So all of a sudden, I think it creates a gathering, a group. And then when it becomes codified, it becomes a bit rigid. Yep. And then people start practicing the, the rules and the organization. And then there are people who become the gatekeepers to to the divine. Yeah. And that's not the way I think it should be. I think that Everybody has access to the divine, and there shouldn't be anybody in between. And when there is somebody in between, that can also lead to abuse. Right. So I, I respect you know, the fact that people are, are looking for spirituality, and I think that sometimes people need something that's more organized, because when, if it isn't organized in that way, one of the beautiful things about being open-hearted and open-minded is that it is a mystery. You know, that it's it's all about the journey. There is right. no solid answer. Yeah. You know, that's the beauty of it. And for some people, that, that could be scary. But for me, I think let's embrace it, yeah. you know, and let's have that sense of wonder and curiosity. Because if it was all figured out, you know, then you, would, you wouldn't need curiosity and wonder. And as I said earlier, curiosity and wonder gets you to the divine, makes you present. And for me, that's the most blissful experience I've ever had. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I feel like that the acceptance of knowing that you're not going to know is is very freeing. It took me a long time to get there, but sort of, you know, as you come to terms with that and just say, you know what, it, it is a mystery and it's it's just out there and you know, I can, I can appreciate it, but I'm, I'm probably not going to be the one to figure it out. <laughs> you know, there have been billions of people before me that haven't. So, but that's the point. You don't want to figure it out because we, maybe we don't have the language for it. It's just like yeah. we don't have the language of nature, right. you know, can you speak to a plant, you know, the way they speak to each other. I mean, actually most of the life on our planet, they speak chemically to one another. Plants do insects do right. Yeah. And then maybe they speak to us chemically as well, because in order to get their vision with psilocybin, you have to eat the mushroom. Right. And so, you know, that's language, that is communication. And it's a miracle that there's a, you know, a molecule in, in the psilocybin mushroom that fits a receptor in the brain, this tiny, tiny molecule that opens up your, your consciousness to looking at everything as connected and love. Right. So what a miracle, you know, that is, but maybe they're speaking to us. So, so this whole idea of being able to figure out everything is maybe we don't have, again, the language skills to understand what is happening in other realms of 
existence yeah. or other realms of the universe. But I, I feel like that's the reason why you have this desire for curiosity and wonder is to keep you leaning forward into life mm. and to be alive, to engage, to wake up every morning, you know, who am I? Yeah. I mean, don't have that like locked in stone. Every morning should be, I'm grateful that I woke up. I'm grateful that there's light entering my eyes. And, I'm, and I, let's just start from scratch. Who am I? What is my purpose? You know, what am I grateful for? Mm. What's going to bring me joy? Yeah. You should not have an answer for that the previous day. You should wake up the next day and, and figure it out all over again. I love that. It goes back to what you were talking about earlier about just being present too and just seeing what's around you and observing it and and being in that moment at that moment and yeah, no, right. no past, no future, just who am I right now and wow. And and that's what that's what makes you know, me love to do documentaries because it's a voyage of discovery. I don't want to know the subject matter before I make the movie. Right. I want to learn. Yeah. I want to be inspired. Yeah. I want to be passionate. I want to figure it out. I want to, you know, I want to discover, I want to get that aha moment. Right. You know, um, I want to be like a child. Yeah. If you're just putting down stuff you already know, it's boring. It's that, it's the path of discovery oh. that makes it, oh, I didn't know that was going to connect. And yeah, no, that's, that's so awesome. But that also translates to the audience. Right. It's not obvious. It's not like, you know, I'm telling people anything. I don't speak to them. If you're looking at beautiful imagery of, of time-lapse mushrooms, for example, but I am speaking to them in terms of the fact that I'm mind blown that look at this thing move. Right. Look at what I've captured. Right. I mean, how do I make this thing, you know, grow? What does it do? How does it sporulate? Look at all the questions. And I, I don't have, all, I still am trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you after 40 years shooting time-lapse flowers, every time I set up a flower, I'm learning something new. Oh, that's awesome. I want to I want to end on uh, one piece of the film that really sort of stood out to me in this current moment, and that was um, there was a there was a section on sort of uh, viral uh, resistance of mycelium and you know pandemic, uh, yeah. a whole section on the Black Death and the 1918 flu pandemic, and I, I guess uh, what are your thoughts on sort of how we get out of this COVID situation? Do you think that that mushrooms and mycelium may hold hold a path forward for us to you know with a vaccine or treatment or, or something else i think it's a possibility i mean definitely in the film we showed that penicillin which is a fungi yep um more lives than any other medicine in human history also was attributed for saving perhaps winning world war ii because we had penicillin the, the english and the americans and the enemy didn't yeah it's really you know remarkable and i can share with the audience that there are some studies that are about to go under, that are about to start, where they are going to test the um, ability for some, you know, mushrooms to be able to potentially deal with viruses like COVID-19. Wow. So yeah, I mean that that there's a pathway. It, again, big pharma has ignored fungi totally, just like they've ignored any kind of herbal supplement. Yeah. Because there's more money made in creating a synthetic drug that you can patent and make a lot of money. So we, we haven't done the research. We haven't even begun to scratch the tiniest surface of what you know chemicals are out there that can benefit us 
especially in this pandemic. Yeah, and there's a piece of it, you know, when I think about homeopathic or naturopathic uh, remedies that just like it's things that we knew as humans for thousands of years, right? Like people just understood, you know, you eat that bad thing, eat this good thing and it will help you. <laughs> or you have this sickness, try this flower, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, it, it, as you say, I guess it's probably profit motive. There, there's a lot of a lot of that kind of institutional knowledge that just got passed down through generations that in the last, what, two, three hundred years has just sort of vanished. And I hope, you know, your film and, and other uh, things like it give us a chance, I guess, to kind of rediscover some of those innate truths. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Louis. This was uh, this was an awesome conversation. And I, I really appreciate your time and uh, just yeah, sharing your thoughts with me. It was uh, it was really incredible. And you know, I, I appreciate that you, you know, we really did a deep dive together. Yeah. And it's like from your own world view, you have shared the same visions and um, ideas and perceptions that I have that, that your audience has, yeah. you know? And I think that, again, the key coming out of this quarantine and the coronavirus, we've got to come up with positive solutions that are in harmony with nature's intelligence. Yeah. We do that, we're on the right path. All right, there we go. Louis Schwartzberg. Wow, that was uh that was awesome. It was relaxing. It was uh eye-opening. It made me think. It made me want to go take a hike in the woods, right? Just go observe some moss and mushrooms and flowers and everything else for a little while and appreciate this beautiful world and our place in it and our interconnectivity, right? Go check out Fantastic Fungi, which is on Apple TV Plus. It's available for rent or download right now. And uh, go check out Louis's other work too. He's got projects on Netflix. He's got projects on Disney Plus. His uh, his footage is everywhere, and uh, it's beautiful. If you've enjoyed today's show, I hope you'll subscribe and uh, get new episodes in your feed. I have new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Let me tell you a little bit about next week. Next week, we're going to be talking all about food and food programming and food creativity. On uh, Monday's show, I have Caitlin Kelleher here, and uh, she is the executive producer of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country, and she also runs their podcasts. And uh, they have decided to shoot America's Test Kitchen from home this year, and they've been working on that over the last couple of weeks. And so she checks in with me just sort of about how that process has gone. I interviewed Julia Colin Davison, one of the hosts of America's Test Kitchen, right at the beginning of this show, very early on. And uh, it was before they sort of knew that that was the plan for the year. But now Caitlin can talk in depth about just sort of some of the challenges, some of the creative refocusing, and also their podcasting, which is phenomenal. And then on Thursday's show, I'm going to be talking to the founders of Ample Hills, the ice cream brand out of Brooklyn. Uh, it's an interesting story if you haven't followed them. They uh, they had a very meteoric rise when they launched their ice cream brand. They got on the radar of Bob Iger and Steven Spielberg and were one of Oprah's favorite things. And then they filed for bankruptcy in March, right before the pandemic uh, closed everything down and ultimately ended up losing the business. They've started a new podcast about that journey. And uh, they also have a really interesting kind of filmmaking background. Brian, uh, the the husband of this husband-wife duo, was a was a screenwriter and uh, an audio producer, and uh, comes comes from our industry, and then pivoted and uh, 
went into making ice cream. And they have a phenomenal story just sort of about the uh, the rise and fall of all that. And they're very honest about it. So that's next Thursday. I hope you'll join me next week. And again, hit that subscribe button so that you'll get all those shows right in your feed. I am at Keith Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Leave me a note. Let me know what's on your mind. I love talking to you guys. And I'll talk to you on Monday with Caitlin Kelleher. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe.